1 Corinthians 15, verse 50. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. As we talked about on Sunday, the kingdom of God is both already and not yet. I'm still stirring on that. In fact, I'm beginning to realize how much is already and not yet when it comes to Jesus. That while the kingdom is already and not yet, while spiritually I have, I have inherited the kingdom. Do you realize that? If you are a follower of Jesus, you have already inherited the kingdom, and yet you haven't fully realized that inheritance. Not yet. We will. And I believe when we fully realize that inheritance, it will absolutely rock our world. Rock our perception, our understanding. When we come into that inheritance in that time of the not yet, we will be stunned. As the Bible says, He will wipe away every tear from their eye. I I don't even know that there will be a single tear. In that moment, we will be so in awe. But the inheritance is not yet. It, It is already, however... I'm an inheritor. I have an inheritance. But flesh and blood cannot fully realize that inheritance. And that's what Paul has been getting at through this whole section. Like grains of wheat shedding the husk, which we talked about last week. So we must shed the perishable and put on the imperishable. Now in Romans chapter 8, verse 10, Paul wrote, If Christ is in you, Though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. Whose righteousness? Yeah, Christ, not yours. Don't for a minute think, oh, my spirit's alive because I finally got it together. No. It doesn't work like that. The spirit is alive because of his righteousness. And Paul goes on to say, if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Jesus said, I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. And so like the kingdom, life itself in Jesus is already and not yet. That we as followers of Jesus Christ have slipped into life eternal right now. And we will. And not yet. It's the not yet life that Paul is dealing with here in this chapter. That he's talking about our coming resurrection. And this is the third part as we've slowly moved through chapter 15. Where now Paul really gets to describing or revealing our resurrection. What does that look like? What is that about And we come to some of the most wonderful verses in the entire Bible. Verse 51, Behold, I tell you a mystery, a mysterion. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. Right? And that word, changed, alasso, in the Greek is literally exchanged. We will be exchanged. I'm turning this old model in. I'm trading it in on the new one, and yet it's out of this old model like we talked about last week. That spark of the eternal is here. But the husk is what you see. The outer shell that dies off, that is unnecessary. The grain of wheat that falls, but then produces great fruit. And we will be, as Jesus is the first fruits, we will be the fruit of His resurrection in our resurrection. This is the first reference, 1 Corinthians 15, 51 and 52. The first reference in Paul's letters to the rapture of the church. The catching up, if you will. 1 Thessalonians 4.16, when he writes to Thessalonica, he will write the following, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up. Harpazo, raptus, if you want to go with the Latin, or rapture in the English. We will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. 
comfort, oh, comfort my people. I can think of nothing more comforting for the son, the daughter of God in Jesus Christ than to know that imminently we will be caught up. We will forever be with the Lord. And when, as I prayed earlier, it seems that everything around me is falling apart, I know my homecoming is drawing nigh. It is soon to be. And I have great comfort in that and and joy in that. In the harpazo, in the catching up. But here in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul, as he reveals the rapture, shows us really a, a who, what, when, how, and why of the resurrection. I don't know if you've thought about this before, but the rapture of the church is simply the first resurrection. The rapture is our part in the first resurrection that began with Jesus and will end with the last person resurrected out of that tribulation period. We are raptured, but it's our resurrection. And it's all that Paul has been talking about, so he is absolutely in context where now suddenly he begins talking about this amazing moment. And he describes it so beautifully. Who, what, when, how, and why? Who? He says, I tell you a mystery, we. So the who is we. He is talking to believers in Jesus Christ. This is not a universal promise. This is not, hey, if you happen to be on the face of the earth, up you go. No, this is if you are a follower of Jesus. You love Jesus. You have a relationship with Jesus. We're going. When He calls, we are the who. What? And the mystery is that we will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. And He's not talking about the cry room. (laughs) We will not all sleep. But we will all be changed. And the mystery is how? How does that happen? What is that about? What does that mean for us? We'll get there. Who? What? When? (laughs) In a moment. In the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. And finally, how? For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we will be changed. But the question that follows then is why? Verse 53. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. we got to change. These bodies are not equipped for eternal kingdom living. we got to be changed. You don't take a 1971 Ford Pinto into the Indy 500. Who remembers the Pinto? <laughs> Ugly little car. Who had a Pinto? <laughs> Sorry, Shelley. Did you like it? Was it a good car for you? Fantastic. Well, glad to fit your daughter's purposes. This is a car that exploded if you got rear-ended. <laughs> Before a Pinto. No one drives a 78 AMC Pacer in the Monte Carlo. We are heading into eternity, folks, and these bodies won't cut it. They ain't going to do it. So we've got to be equipped. Because the flesh, the flesh cannot live forever. The flesh sleeps. However, we will not all sleep. What does he mean then? We will not all sleep. And, and then when he's talking in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, he says, oh, we don't want you to, to be unaware, brethren, of those who have fallen asleep. So the Bible uses this word sleep, and it's because of that people look at that and they say, oh, soul sleep, that when you die you just drift off into this state of of restfulness. The Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible doesn't teach soul sleep. In fact, it's an idea that is strong among the cults. The truth is, when people die, they don't sleep. The spirit is not asleep. The spirit has a destination. If you die in Christ, that destination is Christ. Instantaneously. But the Spirit has a destination. The body looks like it's asleep. Which is why the Bible refers to it as sleep. Why that word is, it's a euphemism for it. It's a picture of it. But Job knew better than this. 4,000 years ago. Job said the following in chapter 14, verse 13 of of his book, Oh, that you would hide me in Sheol, that you would conceal me until your wrath returns, that you would set 
a limit for me and remember me. He says, if a man dies, will he live again? And then he says this, listen, all the days of my struggle, I will wait until my change comes. I will wait until my change comes. That word change in the Hebrew, like the Greek word change, means until I exchange. It's like exchanging one set of clothes for another. I will wait until I can exchange this body, is what Job was saying. Again, the soul does not sleep, but in a sense the body does. So God uses the metaphor for sleep for the dead body throughout the Bible as the closest physical representation. But I'll say it one more time just to be sure you got it. The soul doesn't sleep. The body rests inert, waiting to be resurrected. 1 Thessalonians 4.16 says, The dead in Christ will rise first. And I've shared with you before that word dead is necros. It's the corpse. And in fact, 1 Thessalonians 4, and we're going to go over this much more in depth on Sunday, but 1 Thessalonians 4 said God will bring with Him those who have died in Christ Jesus, and the dead will rise. Well, wait a minute. Which is it? Well, the Spirit is already home with the Lord. But the necros, the corpse, is in the ground. Corpse is going to rise, spirit comes down, instantaneous exchange, and a glorified body happens for those who have died in Christ. And that's the picture here. And so the mystery, the mysterion, something previously unknown and yet now revealed, is this some will never taste death. There are some who will never die. And I've heard people say, well, that's not fair. What makes them so privileged? Grace. (laughs) They don't just happen to be finally a generation that I can just rapture because they're so good. Oh, no. Oh, no. No, it's grace. But some will never taste death. In the rapture, the bodies of both the dead and the living will be exchanged in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. Which is a great phrase. How fast is that exactly? In a moment in the twinkling of an eye. The Greek word for moment, you might recognize it's atomos. Where we get our word atom. And it was once thought, the reason why we use that word atom, was it was the smallest, most indivisible particle. Well, we know that's not true anymore, but that's the idea behind the Greek word, something that is indivisible, that is a flash, so brief, so small, it cannot be divided. That's what the word moment means. It cannot be divided. You can't break it down into seconds, or milliseconds, or microseconds. It's too fast. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, the word twinkling is hripe in the Greek, and hripe simply means instantaneous. And I don't know who the guy was who did this, but it's been measured, that is a twinkling of an eye, that apparently the eye twinkles at the rate of about one one trillionth of a second. That's pretty fast. Snap the fingers, that's too long. You know, blink the eye, some say the blink of an eye, that's, that's a bad translation because a blink is way too slow for what's going to happen when, the church, happen when the church is raptured. In that moment, I mean, we will not even know what, we're just going to be having a conversation and with Jesus. And even that was too slow. <laughs> it's a twinkle, it's just, it, it, in the rapture, the, the pinto becomes a Porsche. <laughs> and much better much better in our instantaneous immeasurably sudden resurrection we will exchange the old temporal husk for the glorious eternal body sounds kind of fantastic you know almost supernatural (laughs) it sounds strange I was not raised to believe in the rapture of the church because it's just Come on. Come on. I mean, that might make for a nice movie or something. But really? And I read it, and I reread it, and I study it through, and I look at all the passages in Scripture that talk about it. Rick, why don't you present all the options to us? You know, the pre-trip, pre-millennial, post-millennial, amillennial, pro-millennial, all the millennials and the tribs and all that. Why don't you just give it all to us? Because there's only one that's right. 
I'm convinced. Because the more I look at the Scriptures, the more I see that this promise that in the twinkling of an eye we will be with Jesus is absolutely biblically sound. And it is constant throughout. It's not just a single verse where you go, well, that could mean this. It's the preponderance of evidence. We will look at much more of that on Sunday, Lord willing. It's a marvelous promise, but it's one that I continue to revisit, I confess to you. Because in my flesh, I think, I don't know. Let me look one more time. Yep, yep, that's what it says. So it must be true. So we're going to continue on. We will come back and talk about the rapture of the church on Sunday morning. Verse 54, however, Paul continues. He says, When this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Do you see how appropriate this is tonight? We need to declare this. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Paul is quoting from two familiar Hebrew passages, familiar to the Jewish people. Isaiah chapter 25, verse 8. He will swallow up death for all time. And the Lord God will wipe tears away from all faces, and He will remove the reproach of His people from the earth, for the Lord has spoken. He's going to swallow up death. Why? Because death is the single greatest cause for tears on the planet. Fear of death. Worry about death. The impact of death. It overwhelms us. Especially as we walk around in the temporal body. Hosea chapter 13 verse 14. The Lord says, Shall I ransom them from the power of Sheol? Shall I redeem them from death? O death, where are your thorns? O Sheol, where is your sting? And then God says, Compassion will be hidden from my sight. And that passage is a judgment on Ephraim, indicating that they would indeed feel the the thorny sting of death. But Paul now offers a mini-commentary on this thorny sting He says in verse 56, The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. And that's it. Do the math. It's the sum of sin plus the law. You put sin together with the law, and all of the pain and suffering and evil, and yes, death in the world is revealed. Sin is empowered by the law. Now the law is perfect. The law, if we could keep it, is wonderful. But it empowers sin in that the law highlights sin. Before the law, no one had a clue. The law comes in and suddenly all the sin becomes very clear. And in that clarity, death becomes a sharp sting. It's unavoidable. Do you realize that believers and non-believers alike know? We know. I've said this before. I believe that all people know that there is a God. Whether they choose to follow Him is another thing. But we know. And I also believe that all people know that we sin and fall short of His glory. And that because of that reality, death is terrifying. In our heart of hearts, we know this. We all recognize both our rightnesses and our wrongnesses. And we can't reconcile the two. Everyone, every person is eventually rudely awakened by life's fragility as many of us were today. It comes along when it's least expected. When you're not looking for it. Debbie was praying, where's, there you are, Debbie was praying about going over to the Cascade Mall. I had the exact same experience. Driving down the road, we're going to pop into the mall and get some stuff, and as we turned into the mall entrance, there were all the balloons and flowers. A big kind of shrine, really, memorial shrine there. And my heart just sank. And, and as you, sister, I felt heavy. It was just, why? 
Because the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. That's what Satan does. That's what sin is about. That's what evil in the world does. And when people come along and say, how come all this bad stuff happens? Where's your God? He is heartbroken. Because people refuse to accept His righteousness and His sacrifice and His love for us. We need to continue to pray for the family. It's the Myers family in Anacortes. Because they're they're hit by this. And and lots of people. I, I mentioned non-believers. When we were praying out here, I mentioned there was a coach at Anacortes High School who said to one of our friends, who, who said, I thought this kind of thing didn't happen to you churchy people. No, we all deal with this stuff. And I use the phrase rude awakening because that's what death is. Funerals, memorials, roadside remembrances. Those things jump out at us and they shock us into the reality that we are temporary in this life. That death is coming. And death without hope is hard to swallow. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, we have a hope. That verse is not Bible light. It's not just a a passing praise. No, it's just as Isaiah prophesied, death is swallowed up. Praise God. Hallelujah. Death has no hold, has no power. Death is swallowed up. That that phrase back up there, death is swallowed up in victory. Swallowed up is catapino, and it means to drink down. Swallowed whole. It's a euphemism. In the Greek, for overcoming, devouring, and destroying. Making an end to. And think about this. Like the kingdom, like our eternal life, like our inheritance to come, death is swallowed up already and not yet. For the follower of Jesus Christ, death is already swallowed up. It has no hold on you. On me. And I, from time to time, still run across brothers and sisters who fear their own death. And I would say to you, why? There's only one thing really that's keeping me here. (laughs) Okay, a couple of things. (laughs) My family, my fellowship, and the sense that God has something for me to do until He wants to call me home. But the idea of going home gets bigger and bigger and bigger for me every day. And it doesn't scare me in the least. I don't want Cheryl to have to raise the kids without me. I don't want the children to be without their dad. I don't want my church fellowship to have to do without me. I think you'll all be fine, but, you know. But I'm not afraid of it. I'm not worried about it. I know. I know what's happening, and I know if I happen to die before the rapture happens, that the dead in Christ rise first, so I'll beat everybody there. (laughs) See, that's what Don knew. Our brother Don Coglin. And he will rise first. Now, death without hope is hard to swallow, but we have hope. And the sting and the fear of death has no hold on the people of this mystery, on the people who know where they will go. Jesus' people. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 says, Since the children share in flesh and blood, He Himself likewise also partook of the same. That through death He might render powerless Him who had the power of death. That is, the devil. And might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. The moment you give your life to Christ Jesus, the chains of death are broken. You are no longer a slave to that reality because bring it on. I'm not concerned about that. To live is Christ, Paul said, to die is gain. And so I don't worry about these things. Death already has no hold on you and the not yet is coming. What is not yet? That death itself will literally be swallowed whole. 
Revelation 20, verse 14. And I don't fully understand how this works, but check this out. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire, the death of death. It will cease to be a thing. That's the not yet. Already it ceased to be a thing for me, but in the not yet, it will cease to be a thing for anyone. By the way, this struck me, and it may sound a little weird to you, but I'm going to say it anyway. This is what I would call the good news of hell. Never thought about it this way before, but hell is there. Hell is not for people. You know that, right? Matthew 25, Jesus said hell was created for the devil and his angels. That's why it was made. It wasn't made because God wanted to send any of his creation there. But it's there, and the good news of hell, it is there for swallowing up all the evil, pain, sorrow, rebellion, hatred, and wickedness in the world. That's a good thing. And for that I'm thankful. And it will happen such that all sorrows cease. Verse 58, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Now that's an unusual combination. Note that again. Be steadfast, immovable, and abounding. I mean, it's like if if I tell my kids... You sit still and you sit in that chair. Turn around and I look back and they're jumping up and down. Well, no, I said, I said, be immovable and steadfast. But they're abounding. <laughs> How does this work? Listen, steadfast and immovable have to do with faith and hope. That we are steadfast in faith. We believe God for His promises. We are immovable in hope. We know He's going to bring it off. However, we are abounding in love, which is, as Paul says, the work of the Lord. Abounding in the work of the Lord. What is the work of the Lord in this world? Love. Loving each other. Loving our neighbors as ourselves. Believers, non-believers, loving them all. Loving Jesus. That's the work of the Lord. And he says, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. You know, after a long day of hard work and effort and energy, perhaps you've, you've put it in on the yard or the house all around and you've worked really hard and by the end of the day you're sore and you're sweaty and you're tired, but you're satisfied. And I wonder if it'll be a little bit like that when Jesus finally does call us home. We might be a little sore the moment before the twinkle. A little sweaty. We've rolled up our sleeves. We've, we've poured out all that we had. But oh, so satisfied. Because our toil will not be in vain. Now Paul's going to finish the letter, and we will too. And he, he goes from talking about this wonderful catching up. The rapture of the church. And our hope, and, and, and the death has no power, and it's just, it's so awesome and so encouraging. And then he turns around and says, Now, concerning the collection for the saints. What? As I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also. He comes to the final paraday, now concerning. And he wants to talk about this collection. Paul. You had such a great crescendo there. You know, you had you had a final note, not unlike the Beatles' "A Day in a Life." You know, yeah, great end, Paul. Now, concerning the collection for the saints, on the first day of the week, each one of you is to put aside and save, as he may prosper, so that no collections be made when I come. When I arrive, whomever you may approve, I will send them with letters to carry your gift to Jerusalem. And if it is fitting for me to go also, they will go with me. This is important. If you think back to Romans 15, uh, verses 25 through 27, it tells us that Paul's third missionary tour was largely about this very collection. That he went out through, went throughout the churches in Asia, and, and came all the way down through the churches there in Greece and then back across collecting funds from the Gentile church to bring back to the church in Judea which was suffering from famine and struggle. 
And Paul no doubt saw it as a, a way of, of bringing Jew and Gentile under the name of Christ, bringing them together even more so. Hey, look, the Gentiles are supporting and encouraging you. And so he, he's doing this with all the churches, and he instructs Corinth to do the same. And it strikes me that if you want a clear measure of your faith, maybe you've read through chapter 15 and you're like, oh, that's good stuff. That's good stuff. The catching up and the, and the resurrection. Yes, I believe. I believe, Lord, in all of this. Okay. You want to put hands and feet on your faith? I got a simple measure for you. Don't look at your most recent journal entry. Look at your checkbook. Because Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart is also. Where's your money go? Millennials, don't look at your blog. Look at your automatic bill pay. You want to know where you, you want to know the practicality of your faith. Where's your money? What are you invested in? Where do you put it? What do you spend it on? Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And Paul, in these few verses, establishes what I would consider to be three principles for healthy giving. And healthy giving means a healthy heart for the follower of Jesus Christ. So here are the three principles. If you want to jot these down, I'll give them to you quickly. Number one, give collectively. Paul says, every one of you. On the first day of every week, each one of you. That's everyone. No one's exempt. From youngest to oldest, from richest to poorest, no one is exempt. Well, I just can't afford to give. Well, according to Paul, in the Word of God, this is an issue for everyone. Why should it only be them? Why should it only be that guy or or, or her? If in the body of Christ all rejoice together, all suffer together, well, I would add all give together. It's something that is done collectively. There is no offering exempt status in the church. It's all in. Ask yourself this question, am I all in for Jesus? I will tell you my answer to that when I was 35 years old was no. Because I wasn't giving a dime. I didn't think I could afford it. I didn't see how it was possible. Besides, I've told you before, I already worked for the church, so I figured that's weird. They pay me and I just give it right back to them. Why would I do that? And my faith suffered for it. And for me, and I've said this many times to you all over the years, this is not about building up a nice reserve. This is about your faith. I don't know what anybody in this church gives. I don't want to know what anybody in this church gives, except myself. I know what I give. This is for everyone, from babysitters to pastors to refinery workers to doctors to bankers to store clerks. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what your income is. Are you, ask yourself, am I all in? Because according to this, Paul's telling Corinth, and I think extending to us, that we are to give collectively. We all do it. I'm not worried about the amount. That's between you and God. Just give something. Just start down that path. Say, Lord, I'm going to begin to trust you with my money because, hey, the deal is, I want my faith to increase. Give collectively. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And Paul's really going to get into this in 2 Corinthians, which I'm going to say for a Sunday morning to really blast the whole fellowship. (laughs) 2 Corinthians 8 verse 12 says, If the readiness is present... It means if you're just willing, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. And God never says, well, I want you to give out of your lack. No, just give out of what you got. Well, I can't give as much as he can. Don't worry about him. What do you have? And give from that. Give collectively. It's an issue for the entire church. No one's exempt. Secondly, give consistently. Paul here says, here's what I want you to do. On the first day of the week, put aside and save. In the church I grew up in, it was the King James, lay by and store. It took me years to figure that phrase out. 
Because a guy would get up there at offering time and he'd say, it's now time for us to lay by and store. And I'm looking for the cot. (laughs) Where am I going to lay by? Put aside and save, he says. Give consistently. And, And here he prescribes every Sunday. First day of the week. And my friends, that's not law, but it's principle. Because the idea of giving is, as it increases faith, it also develops faithfulness. That you give consistently. If, check me on this, in fact, again, another test for your own heart, because I know how this was with me. If, if you give randomly, you will give rarely. Well, I, I know, I, I give, I give. When was the last time? Well, I, let me see, it was 19... <laughs> If I'm random, if I'm not consistent, really with anything in my life, if I'm inconsistent, I don't do it very often. And I don't do it very well. So Paul says, be consistent. Every first day of the week, give. Everyone, every first day. Why does he suggest the first day of the week? Well, what happened on the first day of the week? Exactly. Paul will say in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, you know that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Every first day. Give collectively. Give consistently. And third, give correspondingly. What do you mean? He says that everyone ought to put aside and save as he may prosper. So this is a very simple principle. Give corresponding to as you have received. And this is why, personally, I absolutely love the concept of tithing. Not as a legalistic rule for followers of Jesus, but as a standard. People say, 10%? You really think everybody should give 10%? No, I think everybody should start at 10%. But do you understand it's, it's God's flat tax? How fair that is for everybody? The babysitter makes 10 bucks and puts a buck in the coffers. The banker makes 100000 and puts in his 10%. You do the math. I don't want to have to try and figure that one out. The, the numbers get really big for me. Hey, 10% is 10%. Whether you make $100 or $1,000 or $100,000 or a million dollars, 10% is 10%. I once had a very wealthy man say to me, Ah, yeah, I couldn't tithe. You know, it would be way too much money. To which I think I said something like, Not for me. Would be totally okay with it, truly. But it's it's the same for everybody across the board. And if you prosper more, great, give more. And if you prosper less, okay, give less. It's a very simple principle. It just follows. The point is the heart. That's always the issue with God. And Second Corinthians nine seven, God loves a cheerful giver. And one last thing I ought to tell you on this. As Paul encourages Corinth and us to give collectively, consistently, and correspondingly as we may prosper, God does pay attention to how you give. Not to sit in harsh judgment, but He is fully aware if you are or are not. He knows. I love the scene. Jesus sat down opposite the treasury, Mark chapter 12, and began observing how the people were putting money into the treasury. Well, how dare he watch people giving? Well, God does. And many rich people were putting in large sums. You know the story? A a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which amount to a cent, calling his disciples to him. I can just see Jesus doing, guys, come here, come here. Look at this, look at Like, what, what? They're looking around for some real wealthy person and this little widow drop, bing, and off she goes. He goes, oh, I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all the contributors to the treasury. For they all put in out of their surplus, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she owned, all she had to live on. And I promise you, I guarantee you, because I know Jesus that she didn't miss a meal that day. That God took care of her. That God made sure that this faithful widow 
was looked after. All this to say, don't deny yourself the joy of giving. What it does to your heart, it's not about what the Lord gives because the Lord has it all. He's working on us. And Jesus taught truly that money is the measure of the heart. One other thing, Paul's instruction doesn't include anything relative to gimmicks, fundraisers, ploys, or promotions. He just says give. That comes up from time to time here in the fellowship. The idea of, hey, why don't we do this fundraiser? Or, hey, why don't we have this fundraising drive? And we're really trying to pull back from all of that and say, look, why don't we just give? Let's just give. I mean, if, if we all did what Paul prescribed here for Corinth, we wouldn't know what to do with all the money. So that's the deal. Just give as God blesses you. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 10 says, Now he who, who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness, and you will be enriched in everything. Why, Paul? For all liberality. You will be enriched to be liberal with your money, which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. So how about Corinth? Did they follow through with Paul's prescription here? We'll find out in 2 Corinthians. Hint, hint. Continuing on verse 5, But I will come to you after I go through Macedonia, for I am going through Macedonia. And perhaps I will stay with you, or even spend the winter, so that you may send me on my way wherever I may go. For I do not wish to see you now just in passing, for I hope to remain with you for some time, if the Lord permits. But I will remain in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective service has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. Now, the Lord didn't permit. Paul says, here's my plan, as the Lord permits. The Lord didn't. And what we discover later is... is Paul's plans that he lists out right here went awry. It didn't go as he thought it would go. It didn't head the direction he hoped it would go. It did not work out the way he planned it. Oftentimes our plans don't. But that's the beauty of living as the Lord permits. I love that Paul added just that single phrase. If the Lord permits, this is my plan. Hey, make your plans. Decide what you want to do. Lay it out. Prepare for it. That's all well and good. But always allow the Lord to change direction. Do it as the Lord wills. In fact, it was James who wrote in James 4.13, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we'll go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. You do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. Paul says, if the Lord permits. But then again, I love what he says here, I will remain in Ephesus until Pentecost. He says, this wide door for effective service has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. Whoa! You would expect him to say, yeah, a wide door of of effective service is open for me, and the the city gave me the keys, and, and it's all just going great. But he says there are many adversaries, which tells Paul, I need to stay here longer. If there's opposition to the kingdom, there is also opportunity for the kingdom. That's a big deal. When we meet opposition, we don't shrink back and go, oh, okay, okay, we weren't supposed to go there. No. We recognize sometimes the opposition is our opportunity to press on with the kingdom message, to take it on head on. I occasionally bring up that whole cease and desist order because for me that was a defining moment in the life of this church. When Island County, based on their own standards and rules, had to put up the cease and desist meeting order on the barn on a Friday. And that Sunday morning in the barn was glorious. Because we did not cease, nor did we desist. And I don't think I could have verbalized it at the time, but the Lord was opening an effective door of service for us with a cease and desist notice. Sometimes it's exactly the opposite. This is wonderful about Paul's way of thinking. And and understand, just because there's strong opposition does not mean it's not God's will for you. Sometimes, as I said, opposition is opportunity. Well, how do we know? 
do I know if this is opportunity from the Lord or, you know, or opposition from the Lord? Or how do I know if it's not just opposition from Satan? Or how do I know if Satan's... I, I don't understand. What do I do? It's very simple. You wait on the Lord. Just wait on the Lord. But I don't know what I'm supposed to do, Rick. Well, I don't know what you're supposed to do. What are you asking me for? Wait on the Lord. Have you prayed about it? Well, yeah, I got nothing. Then don't do anything. Wait on the Lord. Paul made his plans. Waited on the Lord. He saw opposition, which the Lord apparently made clear to him that this is a great place for him to stick. And continue in his effective service. Wait on the Lord. Ask the Lord. And give Him time to answer. That's the waiting part. Paul would say in Philippians 3.18, For many walk, of whom I often told you and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies to the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. And he says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. When Paul says a wide door for effective service is open, and we're getting some struggle going on here, I just know he said that with a smile on his face. Because Paul is not a whiner, he's a winner. He's not a victim, he's a victor. And like any good colonizer, we talked about colonizing on Sunday, like any good colonizer, Paul knows and even expected opposition. Remember this, Matthew eleven twelve. from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and violent men take it by force. Jesus says, look at what's going on here. There's opposition. Anytime the Lord starts to move, there's going to be opposition. But we as a colony of life in a world of death, we're going to face opposition. We wait on the Lord and we trust Him to show us our effective service. Now, Paul's going to end the letter with, I love how he does this, he just kind of gets personal. He's going to show us some personal mentions here. We'll do this and we'll finish up tonight. Verse 10. Now if Timothy comes, Timotheus, see that he is with you without cause to be afraid, for he's doing the Lord's work, as I also am. So let no one despise him, but send him on his way in peace, so that he may come to me, for I expect him with the brethren. Timothy was probably not the bastion of strength that some might think he was. Not at first. I mean, consider what the Bible tells us about Timothy. First of all, he apparently had self-confidence issues. First Timothy 4.12, Paul said, Let no one look down on your youthfulness. Secondly, he had a weak tummy. And he was sick a lot. Paul says in 1 Timothy 5.23, Use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Your frequent ailments. So he's worried that he's looked down as a kid. He's got tummy aches galore, frequent ailments, and he's a bit on the emotional side. I mean, Paul wrote in 2 Timothy 1.4, I recall your tears. Which rightly translated is, I recall your weeping. You're sobbing. You're bawling. So if you put all that together, he lacks self-confidence, he has a weak tummy, and he cries a lot. And here Paul says, if Timothy comes, see that he is with you without cause to be afraid. So he's kind of scared. Tim and Tim. And Paul says, don't scare him. Paul called Timothy his beloved son. Paul saw something in Timothy. If we look on the surface, we see all these things I just mentioned. But if you look at the heart, Paul saw, I believe as the Lord sees the heart, and he saw something in Timothy. Remember to consider your calling, brethren, 1 Corinthians 2.26, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. 
and Timothy for all of these little issues would be a great missionary, pastor, and leader of the first century church. Timothy. Take it easy on him when he arrives. Verse 12. But concerning Apollos, our brother, I encouraged him greatly to come to you with the brethren, and it was not at all his desire to come now, (laughs) but he will come when he has opportunity. Apollos. I love that Paul is so honest. He doesn't really want to come. I know you of the Apollos crowd would love to see him, but he's just, no, he's not into it right now. He's got other stuff going on. Doesn't really want to be with you. Luke refers to Apollos back in Acts chapter 18 as mighty in the Scriptures. So a real Bible stud. A firebrand of a Bible teacher. At first it was a bit inaccurate. You may recall that Priscilla and Aquila had to take him aside with gentle correction. But the next thing we know, Acts 18.28 says he was powerfully refuting the Jews in public, demonstrating by the Scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. And apparently, Apollos had a big fan base there in Corinth. Remember? 1 Corinthians 1.12, Paul writes, Each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, and I am of Apollos, and I have Cephas, and I have Christ. Has Christ been divided? 1 Corinthians 3, verse 5, What then is Apollos? And what is Paul? Servants, through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave to each one, I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. And what I love about Paul here is he refers to Apollos. We tell very, we can see very clearly, Paul had no threat. Paul was not threatened by Apollos coming into Corinth and teaching and gaining followers and, that didn't bother Paul at all. Apollos, our brother, I encouraged him, go! Go back to Corinth. They need to hear from you. Oh, but Paul, I don't know if that's a good idea, man, because you know there's the Apollos clan there, and you send Apollos to the Apollos clan, and now he's going to just take over the church, and Paul's like, it's God's church. It belongs to Jesus. It doesn't belong to Apollos, and it certainly doesn't belong to Paul. And it's also obvious that Apollos himself was not impressed that he had a fan club. He wasn't on the next boat to Corinth. Oh, Apollos heard that you wanted him to... He's on his way. I couldn't stop him. No, he's got something else going on, so he'll come when he can. (laughs) Apollos. And now, Paul gives a five-fold, what I'd like to call a five-finger life punch here. I don't know if you've ever heard of a five-finger death punch. That's a thing in martial arts, kind of a mysterious thing. Five-finger death punch. It's also a heavy metal band that I don't really have a whole lot of use for. Five-finger life punch in verse 13. Paul says, be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, let all that should be done be done in love. Five. It's good stuff. Be on the alert. I, I think of Lucy telling Linus, you know, that he says, why should I have to memorize these lines for the Christmas pageant? And she says, I'll give you five good reasons. One, two, three, four, five. And Linus says, those are good reasons. (laughs) Five great things Paul lays out, one right after the other, be on the alert. How many times did Jesus say that? How many times does Paul say that? How many times does Peter and John, we hear this over and over, be on the alert. Why? Twinkling of an eye. And it can happen any time. Be on the alert. Live on the alert. Stand firm in the faith. Don't let the winds and waves of this world cause you to waver. Stand firm. I love this. Act like men. Ladies, I don't know what you do with that. Act like men. Be strong. Okay, Paul, well, how do you do that? Well, you do that by letting all that you do be done in love. Because real men act in agape. You want to act like a man, brothers? You love. You love your wife. You love your friends. You love your children. You love your brothers and sisters in Christ. You love the non-believer. That's what a real man, that's what a godly man does. Act like men. Love people. Love as Christ Jesus first loved us. Love like Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus. These guys were great examples of acting like men. Verses uh, 15, reading on. Now I urge you, brethren, you know, 
the household of Stephanus, that they were the first fruits of Achaia. First believers there. And they also have devoted themselves for ministry to the saints. That you also be in subjection to such men. And to everyone who helps in the work and labors, I rejoice over the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus, because they have supplied what was lacking on your part. For they have refreshed my spirit and yours. Therefore, acknowledge such men. I I had to sit on this one for a while. What, What is Paul saying here? What does he mean they've supplied what was lacking on your part? Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus were probably the delegation who brought the Corinthian letter full of questions to Paul in the first place. And in coming to Paul, they had refreshed his spirit. They brought the letter, but they stayed with him, and Paul was greatly encouraged by them being there. And it's very likely then that this letter that we're reading, that Paul would finish uh, speaking to Sosthenes, who is the scribe, was written up and then sent back by these same three guys. They may have been elders at Corinth. But they were servants for the ministry of the gospel. And Paul says, man, be in subjection to people like that. Trust that these guys really do have your best interest in mind because they're real men who love. And they've refreshed me and they will come back and refresh you as well. And as I read things like this, I'm reminded it's one of the things I love about the way Paul ends his letters. And about how the New Testament even reads. We We just left in chapter 15 one of the most remarkably God breathed sections in the entire Bible. And then Paul's talking about Stephanus. So casual, so, you know, honest and just relational. These letters are fantastically divine and wonderfully human. Because the Bible brings the divine to humanity. In the same way that Jesus, the Word, became flesh and dwelt among us, so He enfleshes the Word among us. And we read this, and it's not like reading some feigned book of religion. There are a lot of them out there. I I encourage you to pick one up and compare it to the Scriptures. It's completely different. Religious books always sound very high and mighty and hoity-toity, you know. Well, the Bible is just real. Hey, receive these guys. Hey, be be good to Timothy when he comes. Don't scare him, you know. (laughs) Apollos is going to get there when he can. I mean, it's just so, so real and so relational. There's genuine love here. And again, the divine touching the human and the human touching the divine. And so in verse 19 he says, Hey, the churches of Asia greet you. Aquila and Prisca, which is a nickname for Priscilla, they greet you heartily in the Lord with the church that is in their house. All the brethren greet you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. And we talked about the holy kiss thing in Romans, so let's not go back there. Don't start kissing each other. Weirdos. Greet one another with a holy face slap is what would happen around here. Started doing that? No, he's talking about proximity and he's talking about affection. And he's saying, be affectionate one with another. Greet each other. Love each other. And then he says, the greeting is in my own hand, Paul. So, Sosthenes, verse 1 tells us Sosthenes is with Paul. So probably the scribe now hands the, the quill or the pen, to Paul, and he takes it up, and now he writes his own greeting. The greeting is in my own hand, Paul, and if anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed. Maranatha! (laughs) What? I mean, that sounds a little harsh. If anyone does not love the Lord, he should be accursed. Maranatha! (laughs) Let me help you understand this. Accursed is the word anathema. And anathema is the highest level of Jewish cursing. There are three levels of Jewish cursing. Anathema is the top level. It is the level that is non-redemptive. So this is what he says here. I'd like to lighten it up for you. I can't. If anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed. Anathema. Unredeemable. What is Paul saying? He is expressing, my friends, a reality. 
If you don't love the Lord, you will be accursed. You can't be redeemed. He's stating a truth here. But understand this, and I love it. In this one phrase, if anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed. Paul, in the word love, says phileo, not agape. He's not talking about perfect, unconditional love. He says, man, just have an affection for Jesus. If you even have a fondness, a brotherly love for Jesus, you will not be accursed. If anyone doesn't have a fondness for Jesus, you're going to be accursed. Because the only way into this, the only way to the Father is through the Son. And Jesus is not interested in your religion. He wants a relationship, a fondness, a friendship, if you will. And so Paul says that. And they would have seen it very clearly because they were reading in Greek, right? So they see phileo. Oh, if anyone doesn't have that sense of of fondness, brotherly affection, friendship, love, then yeah, they will be anathema. And, And Paul just stripped all the religion out of salvation in this one sentence. Just made it so down to earth. He does not use unconditional... If anyone doesn't have unconditional agape... He's going to hell. Well, guess what? I'm lost. Because I don't have unconditional agape love. I don't love God that perfectly. I confess that to you. Do you? Can you say 24-7, man, I am just unconditional. Everything I do in my life is unconditional love for God. No, it's not. And I can prove it to you. You just lied to me by saying that. (laughs) But, But a fondness? Oh, yeah. Uh, a friendship with Jesus? Uh, a brother? I, 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 that I can do. I'm like Peter on the beach, man. Jesus said, Peter, do you agape me? And Peter says, well, Lord, you know I Philadelphia, you? <laughs> and Jesus says it a second time, Peter, do you agape me? Well, uh, let's, let's get this clear, Lord. Of course I do, Philadelphia. <laughs> and finally, Jesus, I love this, says Peter. Do you Philadelphia me? And Peter goes, Yes, yes, that's what I've been trying to say. (laughs) Jesus meets him where he is. Jesus meets you, meets me where we are, and he says, Look, just come be my friend, and you will be redeemed. Come enter into that, and don't worry about the anathema. And then Paul says, Maranatha, our Lord cometh. Our Lord comes. And Paul in this statement reminds me that everything must be done with the soon return of Jesus in view. The rapture can happen at any time. So I would leave you with this question. How is your friendship with Jesus? Not your religion. Don't tell me about your tithing. Don't don't talk about your church attendance. Don't talk about your personal holiness. How's your friendship with the Lord? He's coming. And Paul writes, The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Understand how personal this was for Paul. This whole letter, he didn't write to set doctrinal standards for the church. He wrote it because he loved the people at Corinth. He wrote it because they were brothers and sisters. He planted that church. These people mattered to him. It's why his words get strong at some points. It's why in the next letter he turns around and he says, Man, I just want you to be comforted. I love you all so much. And that's Christianity. And that's really what we're dealing with here. And we can easily get confused. I can. I've confessed. Get confused by doctrine and, and... towing the line in our religiosity and getting a little full of ourselves. And I read this and I'm just reminded we're just a bunch of people who really like Jesus. And sometimes we even love Him. And Lord, this is a room full of people who can say we want to love You with agape. We really do. As long as we're in these shells, as 
long as we're in these perishable bodies, that that desire for agape, it's just not quite there. Sometimes, but not always. But I, I can honestly say, and I believe my brothers and sisters can as well, Lord, we love you with the best that we have. And while we know it's not perfect, we also know that you are. While we realize we are unrighteous, we know that you are righteous. While we know we lack in things like grace and mercy, we know that you are full of grace and mercy. And because you first truly agape loved us, we just say, Lord, we love you back. And we pray, Father, that you would fill our hearts with with that love. It's a love that's just so real and and genuine. A love that says, hey, we will walk out this life together in the name of Jesus and for all the joys and yes, Lord, even all the sorrows. We'll just keep loving each other until you call us home.